Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not, here I come, Two Tongues Pod. What's up, you guys? I'd sing more Lauryn Hill, but you wouldn't like it. <laughs> I'm not a songbird. Um, <clears throat> or a show pony, as Kyle would say. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. This one is an extension of the last one, and I am super into it. So uh, if you guys followed along, last episode was called Gandalf the Red. Um, our first delve into Carl Jung's Red Book. So that was my my attempt at some kind of clever humor or something, Gandalf the Red. Uh, but it's been really interesting. If you listened to the last episode, you know that. Uh, I do want to apologize for missing last Wednesday's episode. Uh, that was all my fault. Uh, it was all planned out. We we're going to have Matt on the podcast, talk about movies, have a fun chat. But I, I was sick. Um, I thought that it was alcohol-related, that I drank a little too much and just wasn't feeling well. Um, but then the whole family subsequently has been sick, so it turns out turns out that wasn't the, te- wasn't the tequila after all. <clears throat> In any case, I was not up to having a conversation. I was, <laughs> I was going to. I was going to try. But I don't, I, I, I'm glad we didn't because I don't know how, how entertaining that would have been or whether I even would have been able to, uh, to, to sit through the whole conversation. I left Kyle high and dry. But in any case, uh, we were doing Gandalf the Red. We were talking about Carl Jung's Red Book. And, uh, you know, basically what you've got is this this really highly respected academic guy. I mean, obviously, he's a psychiatrist, was a psychiatrist. And um, because of his kind of early role in analytic psychology, um, a lot of people wrote... Carl Jung off as a as a hippie or a mystic or something uh, because he went you know two or three giant steps farther than Freud went and um, he went in a different direction you know he just like any psychiatrist his goal was the health of the human mind and he determined Carl Jung determined that the health of the human mind is not just a medical question but a psychological question and that turns out to be something like a spiritual question so Carl Jung went down that that particular avenue where all of the other uh, psychiatrists kind of didn't. They uh, they used a little bit of what Carl Jung had uh, had discovered and Freud had discovered about the the power of the mind and you know um, we've talked about all kinds of things that go along with that. But Carl Jung just he just went a step too far. He he got a little bit too mystical and the reason for that seems to be that there was something there. There was something to it. And he really got into that as an experiment with himself. You know, like we talked about that on the first episode. He, he practiced what he called active imagination, which is something like 
fantasizing or dreaming while you're awake and getting good at that, getting good at letting images and ideas and thoughts from his subconscious or unconscious to kind of come to the forefront so he could play with, play around with them and try to figure them out the way you might if you were dreaming, but with way more control over it, like a lucid dream. And uh, then he would wake up and he would write down all the details of these dreams and, um, you know, try to understand them. And eventually he put down, he put down these dreams in a book that he called the Red Book. And that's what we read from yesterday and if, last week, rather. And you guys will remember if you listen to the episode, it is fantastic. And not just in a, like, I loved it sort of way, in a fantastic, like, look up the word fantastic. Look up what that fucking means. That's what I mean. It was fantastical. It was Carl Jung speaking to the spirits that dwell within him, speaking to his soul, beckoning to his soul, trying to trying to coax her out of himself so that he could know her and understand what his soul is and what he is. Meanwhile, he's got this C.S. Lewis screw tape letters thing going on with with a devil and an angel on each shoulder, one of them called the spirit of the depths and one of them called the spirit of the times. And they're kind of both angels and they're kind of both devils. And it's amazing. And they're talking to him and he's asking them questions and he's, he's frightened by them. He's frightened by the whole experience. He's frightened by this conversation he's having with himself. He's frightened by the questions he's asking and frightened by the answers he's giving to himself. And it's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. It's something like reading, um, a, like a psychedelic trip report. It's something like reading a revelation from a, from a holy book, you know? Um, it's just dope. Can I call it dope? It's dope, you guys. Um, it speaks to me. It actually speaks to me more than any book I've read in a very long time, and I don't know why exactly. Yeah, partly, partly it's because of so much of what Carl Jung says corresponds to what I already believe and some of the intuitions that I've earned from kind of mystic experience. And so he just seems like kindred spirit to me. So there's something like that going on. But I don't go with him 100% all, all the way on everything. I just think watching like a fly on the wall, and that's what, it's, that's what it feels like to me. Being a fly on the wall, watching Carl Jung struggling with his own existence. It's amazing. Maybe that's because that's what I'm doing, struggling with my, with my being and my own existence as well. And it just seems like Carl Jung's got something in this red book that is valuable, something that I can pick up from it. And I'm still trying to figure out what it is. And last time he said some things about how important life is and living and living life for yourself and only the way that you can, because you're a unique human being with unique experiences and unique circumstances. And your life will be unique if you live it and warning us against living other people's lives, living our own, because somehow that is going to lead you deeper into yourself. It's going to cause the the transformation within that's necessary to see some great truths, to unlock some great mystery of being. And, and that's what it is, man. It's like the searching for the mystery of being. It's like a treasure hunt for me. Um, I don't know where the appeal comes from. I think I was born with it. But, but I, I think it's related to like my interest in... Uh, treasure like treasure shows you know, the curse of oak island and some some of these others like just love it i just love the idea of digging down into the earth where something's deeply hidden and uncovering it and there's some imagery there and some symbolism there that's so 
identical to what Carl Jung talks about. Like he's excavating his soul, you know, digging down into the sub-basements and, and figuring out what's there. And it's a deep, deep mystery. It's a mystery every bit as deep as God, every bit as deep as creation and origins. It's, it's, it's the mystery of consciousness. And, um, and that brings me back to the, to the Red Book. We're not even close to anywhere near done. We've seen Carl Jung taking steps in his fantasies to get closer and closer to his soul and to understand himself better and what his soul is and what he needs to be doing. Um, and I, well, I think what I'll do is I'm just going to bring you little bits of this as I read through it. I, I don't know that it's, it's going to be consecutive, so we're probably going to do some stuff in between, but I'm just going to keep bringing this stuff to you, mainly because I am like dying to continue to read it. Um, and hopefully some of that enthusiasm will come through for you on part two. So this is Gandalf the Red, part two. I'm calling it Projection and Integration of Soul. All right. You guys ready? All right, here's my intro. Young continues the conversation he's having with his soul and the spirits that dwell within his psyche. Where we left off, he was struggling with the idea that God is both the very greatest of things, transcendence, and the very lowest of things, the banal, the everyday, and even the disgusting and the evil. The spirit of the depths kept calling him back to the lowest and smallest of things until he stopped struggling against the idea and began to accept it. So you may remember that Carl Jung was more than willing to accept God or the idea of God or the image of God, as he'll call it, as something that lives within us and represents the highest of things, that represents transcendence, some peak goal or some peak manner of being. Um, that was no problem for him, thinking about God as something like that. But coming to realize within himself that that's not the whole picture, that he's missing something important, that he's missing the other half, even, of this a concept that he calls God, and that it's not just the highest of things, it's all things, and that includes the lowest of things. And Young struggled with that. Like, what do you mean God's the lowest of things? What do you mean God is the scum on my shoe? What do you mean? Um... You know, the things that he rejected as evil or disgusting or immoral or weak or, you know, neurotic or whatever it is, he had to understand those things too as a part of God. And a more true and complete image of God resulted, which at long last allowed Young to move one step closer to his soul, to be one step more worthy of it. He's still frightened of his soul, though frightened of himself, and these doubts and fears remain an obstacle in the way of his goal, which seems to be something like union with his own soul. And that's something like the idea of integrating, right? This is something that Carl Jung talks about. He talks about the evil side, the dark side, something that is represented in our dreams and our myths as the shadow, the devil, the adversary. Jung called it the shadow, that dark part of ourselves that has to be, he says, integrated into yourself. You have to recognize that dark part of you is a part of you. You have to accept it. And when you do that, then you can finally take control over it. So there's this idea that you have to integrate these psychological forces that are within you 
and join them up with yourself so that you can take charge of them, so that you can take ownership of them, so that you can possess them for yourself. And it's the idea of integration. And this seems to be exactly what he's talking about or exactly what he's seeking with his own soul. He's speaking to her. He's calling to her. He's trying to bring her forth. He's trying to get closer to her. He's trying to get her approval. What is he trying to do? He's trying to become his soul. He's trying to integrate his soul into himself. It's, it's really interesting. So I ask you to listen as we read today through some of these quotes. Listen to the questions that Jung asks his soul. Pay attention and you will see where his doubts and fears lie. They're even oblique to himself. He, he doesn't even understand them all the way. He is coming to understand his questions and he, as he goes along, and we'll see that. He asks things of his soul and then he tries to comprehend its response. Something like a horror movie, you guys. Imagine this dark room with this sage old man in it, speaking to the spirits that nobody else can see, speaking to these great and powerful forces that exist nowhere but within him. You know, maybe there's a crystal ball on the table. Maybe there's a little fog machine coming underneath the door. This is the, this is the scene. Put yourself there. Here we go. I call this first section on the service of the soul. And we begin with Carl Jung, again, speaking to his soul. And he says, he says a few things. He says, what strange things are happening to me? Where are you leading me? My foot hesitates to follow you. Into what mist and darkness does your path lead? I do not trust you. So he's speaking to his soul. Isn't that interesting? He says, I do not trust you. And that's so important, man. It's like, this is his own soul, and he knows he's speaking to his own soul. He knows he's speaking to the depths of himself, whatever that thing is that we call the soul that we don't understand, and he's speaking to it and telling it all sorts of things. You know, you, but you can see the fear that he, in his words. What strange things are happening to me, right? He's, he's transforming as he's getting closer and closer to his soul. He asks, where are you leading me? Why do you ask that question? You only ask that question if you're digging your heels in, right? You're digging your heels in as you're getting dragged along because you don't, you don't know where you're going and you're afraid of where that might be. He even says, my foot hesitates to follow you. In what mist and darkness does your path lead? And then I do not trust you. Carl Jung doesn't trust his own soul. What does that mean? <laughs> Is anybody sympathetic to that idea that you don't trust your own soul? I don't, I don't know. Maybe. You ever ask yourself a question or, or wonder about a decision you have to make and you sit there quietly with yourself and you, and you ponder it and ideas and solutions and possibilities will pop into your head. And how many of us say to ourselves, you know, that, that'll never work. That's nonsense. You know, that's an overreach. That's an overstep. We, we do that to ourselves all the time because we don't trust ourselves, right? Because we think... This, the solution that I've proposed for myself can't possibly be the best one. I need to ask, my, you know, an adult. I need, I need to ask an older person. I need to ask my friends and family. I need to ask other people. I, I need to ask the experts. I need to figure out what I should do. And somebody has to tell me that. No, 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 no. You have to tell yourself that. And only you can tell yourself that. And this, I think, is what he, he means when he says, I don't trust you. He, he knows that his soul has taken him somewhere. 
He wants to go there and doesn't want to go there. He's afraid. All right, he goes on. Must I also learn to do without meaning? Is there also a supreme meaning? Is that your meaning, my soul? Should I also set aside self-judgment? I am afraid. So you can see these questions he's asking his own soul. He's, he's sitting there quietly asking himself, must I also learn to do without meaning? Right? Because he wants to take more steps towards his soul. And he thinks maybe there's a sacrifice here. This goes back to what we talked about in the first episode where he was talking about the syzygy. He was talking about the union of opposites. And he kept calling them um, sense and nonsense. The union of sense and nonsense. The union of meaning and absurdity. He, he had to understand you know, that they were one thing and not two. A syzygy, as he said. The Ouroboros, as Jordan Peterson would say. And so what he's asking here is, do, do I also have to do without meaning? Like if meaning and absurdity are one thing, do I have to give up the idea that anything means anything? Is that a sacrifice I have to make so that I can come closer to my soul? And then he says, is there also a supreme meaning? And that's exactly what we just said. The supreme meaning this is a word he, he coined in the last, the last episode. Um, it has something to do with the idea of meaning and absurdity together. That thing, whatever that is, the union of the two, is something like the supreme meaning. So he's asking again, is that real? Is that your meaning, my soul? And then he says, should I also set aside self-judgment? Right? So if he's, if he's somebody who thinks that he needs to get past the idea of meaning, that things don't mean anything, uh, let's say. Um, that seems to go hand in hand with him putting aside his own like contradiction. So he's going to set aside self-judgment, he says. You know, he's somebody who craves meaning, who wants understanding. Is he supposed to set aside self-judgment so that he can give up meaning and understanding? Something like that. And then you can kind of understand where the fear comes from because he says, I am afraid. Imagine yourself, well, imagine yourself as you are right now, existing in a world where everything makes sense and most things have concrete meaning. And then imagine flipping a light switch and all of that meaning going away. And then you're in a position where you have to exist in this place where nothing means anything. I mean, what does that even mean? And doesn't that fucking terrify you? Isn't that scary? And this is where Jung thinks his soul is leading him. His, his soul is leading him into nonsense, into madness, into this side of himself that he's been avoiding. And it scares the shit out of him. He says, I must return to myself, to my smallest things. I saw the things of my soul as small, pitiable small. You force me to see them as large, to make them large. Is that your aim? I follow, but it terrifies me. See again, I'm afraid. I do not trust you. It terrifies me. This, this is what Carl Jung is dealing with while he's seeking his soul. I, I mean, that's important. And he still goes after it. Even with all the doubts and fears, thinking that he might be walking into madness. That's, that requires bravery. And then this, this passage here really talks about 
um, it's a sort of a nod to what we talked about in the first episode is he was trying to understand God as not just the greatest of things, but the smallest of things. And this is what he's saying. I must return to myself, to my smallest things. And he admits, I saw the things of my soul as small, right? Carl Jung is struggles with the this humble instinct that many of us do where we think of our we think oftentimes much much more highly of other people than we do of ourselves we're much harder on ourselves than we are on other people probably because we know all of our flaws and faults and so forth and that's what he's getting at here he's like i thought of my soul as small pitiably small you force me to see them as large to make them large he's talking to his soul he said you are forcing me to see my soul not as pitiably small, the way I've always thought, but as something formidable, maybe the most formidable. And then he asks, is that, is that what you're getting at? Is that your aim? He's like, I can go with you, but I am but I'm terrified. And, I, and what comes to my mind here is the mystic experience. Again, it's coming to recognize the God within. That is terrifying. It's terrifying for all sorts of reasons. If you have to come to understand God, this concept that maybe you've given up on, or this concept that maybe you you understand in a really rigid religious context, God is something the most high, the most distant from you, something that you're unworthy of, something that has the power to create from nothing and to destroy everything. That thing, that thing is within me? That's what the mystic experience tells you, Right? So if you if you come to recognize that God, that thing I just described, is within you and is indistinguishable from you, then you have to realize that that terrible power and terrible responsibility of the creator of the cosmos is you, the same person that you believe is pitiably small, the same person that you believe is powerless, you know, comparatively speaking, and you, you can't trust your own opinions or your own desires you can't you can't trust yourself at all you right that thing that you think so little of that's god god is god is there yeah that's terrifying that's like wielding the eye of sauron or something you have that power it exists within you what does that mean it's it's scary it's like something out of a sci-fi movie all right, so now there's a bit of the Red Book I'm going to read to you, and i just refresh your memory. There are pieces of it where he, um, where Carl Jung italicizes it or puts in his notebooks, I think he put them in different colors or something, but it, there's pieces of this that is his soul speaking to him or the spirits within him speaking to him, and that's what we're going to read next, a piece like that. And it goes like this. If you take a step towards your soul, you will at first miss the meaning. You will believe that you have sunk into meaninglessness, into eternal disorder. You will be right. Nothing will deliver you from disorder and meaninglessness, since this is the other half of the world. All right, there's a little bit more to it, but fucking A. You, you will be right, he says. Nothing will deliver you from disorder and meaninglessness, since this is the other half of the world. Now that... Sounds like a threat. It sounds like a, not a threat, but like a, like a inevitability, like a terrible inevitability, right? Nothing will deliver you from disorder and meaninglessness since this is the other half of the world. So not being able to be delivered from disorder and meaninglessness 
is another terrifying idea. What does he mean, though, when he says that this is the other half of the world? So this is another reference back to wholeness, to the one from mystic intuition, what Jung calls the syzygy, and Jordan Peterson calls the Ouroboros. It is the union of opposites, the generative union of opposites, chaos and order together, two opposing forces that together represent everything there is, a wholeness. And this is this mythological idea, this is this archetypal image that Jung is going to talk about, and half of it is chaos, right? That's disorder and meaninglessness. And the other half is order. So you can see they're, they're opposites. What he's saying is that you yourself and the entire world is, is a syzygy, half chaos, half order. So you know you can never get away from disorder and meaninglessness because it's the other half of the world. And what does that mean? It means you have to accept it somehow. You have to embrace it somehow. You have to come to a realization that order and chaos are one thing. They're one thing within you. And chaos can become order, and order can become chaos. And you have to kind of be okay with that. You have to find a way to be okay with that. What does that mean? All right, this, this piece continues a bit. It goes like this. Disorder and meaninglessness are the mother of order and meaning. Order and meaning are things that have become and are no longer becoming. So this is a bit of a philosophical, we've talked about being and becoming before, uh, but becoming is something that's, that's constantly changing, it's something that's transforming. Um, being is something that is, kind of is as it is, and so the idea is like becoming is something like chaos, it's this transforming potentiality. Order is something like being, you know, it, it rises from becoming, it's something that comes from the transformation. And once you get that fixed form, that fixed order, then you've got something. And so he, he wants to remind you that disorder and meaninglessness are the mother of order and chaos. That chaos can become order and order can become chaos. That they are one thing. And that's a little bit of a redeeming idea. Remember, it's a little it's scary to think that we're going to descend into disorder and meaningless and never meaninglessness and never be able to get ourselves out, never be able to crawl free of that because it's the other half of the world. And so now he's saying, look, it is the other half of the world. But remember, that's half the picture. The other half is order and meaning and they go together. You can't have one without the other. So it's something like chaos is necessary to transform and revitalize order. Otherwise, it stops transforming loses its animation, its potency, and dies. It sinks back into the unconscious like a repressed force which waits to burst forth again. So it's really interesting that Jung's, Jung, he talked about image and form together in the last, the last episode. He brought that up. Image and form together. That's what he calls order. And it's the force that animates it, it, this, the force that animates that image is is the soul, the same soul he's searching after, you know, in this exercise, in the Red Book. And I think, I just want to pause for a second on this idea that the soul animates the image. Because Jung is going to talk a lot about images. He'll talk about, you know, 
archetypal images. Uh, that's what Alfred North Whitehead would call eternal objects, I believe. Uh, if you guys remember our Whitehead episode. Um, and, and so the idea that, that, that archetypal images and even material creatures like a human being or material objects and that they're something like symbols. There's something, there's something like images. Everything maybe is something like images. A psychologist might say something like representations. You know, when we look out at the world and when we experience people and, and objects and things, we never really experience the things in themselves. We only ever experience our brain's representation of what's out there. So there's something like a represent, like the world of our experience is a representation. It's symbolic, some, something like that. It's an image. And Jung is going to continue to say that this thing that he's calling chaos, the, the one half of the, of, the, you know, of, of the universe, let's say, that it is something like the animating force, the revitalizing force, something that makes the image, I want to use the word alive, it makes the image real. It makes it alive. It's the soul that descends into the image that brings it to life. Otherwise, it's just an empty shell. Something like that. And that idea is going to get really interesting as we roll through this. Because, because Carl Jung seems to think that a soul possessing a symbol or an image is something that happens in literature. It happens in music. It happens in our dreams and in our myths, and maybe it happens in the material world. Maybe all of that is just a fractal mirror of itself, of, a, of, a, of the soul, whatever that is, possessing forms, images. And that's what we call being. That's what we call the material world. And so there's layers and layers of this idea of a spirit possessing an image. And I, I just want you to hold that in your mind as we continue to read through this. All right, so this is uh, still the, the soul speaking to Young, uh, and it goes like this. You open the gates of the soul to let the dark flood of chaos flow into your order and meaning. If you marry the ordered to the chaos, you produce the divine child, the supreme meaning beyond meaning and meaninglessness. All right, so the hair standing up on my arms. It's a little bit like an Asian proverb. A lot of young is going to do that. And I think as a result, it reminds me of a lot of Asian philosophy. So there's some of some of that I'm going to give you as a compliment to young as we go through, um, in particular, some stuff from Taoism. But let me just start again here where he says, it's so Jordan Petersonian, though, by the way, this this opening. You open the gates of the soul to let the dark flood of chaos flow into your order and meaning. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you open up the, the gates of the soul and let chaos flood into your order and meaning? So we just said that a little bit ago, that if chaos is the soul, if it's the thing that possesses the image and makes it alive, that revitalizes it, that's why we want to let it in. Because order is something that's static. It's something that decays and dies. It gets chipped away and eroded by by wind and and water. You know, it just like just like anything, order is going to eventually degrade and disappear, unless it's maintained, unless it's revitalized, unless this breath of life is breathed back into it from time to time. And that's what he's calling the divine child. And if there's some Christian imagery come into your mind, that's on purpose. 
What is the divine child? Well, Jung calls it the supreme meaning beyond meaning and meaninglessness. Remember, it's the union of meaning and meaninglessness. What is that? What is that syzygy? If you take something like meaning and you combine it with its opposite, we want to think that nothing is left, that they cancel each other out. But that is not the case. The supreme meaning is left over. It's not annihilated by the, by the union of opposites. The supreme meaning is something like potentiality. It's like the greatest of all things, the seed or spark of something new, something new to come into being. This is what he's calling the divine child. Now, Jordan Peterson talks about this when he, he talks about Taoism, actually. He talks about the yin and the yang symbol. So hold that image in your mind for a second. You got that circle. You got that sort of wave shape that runs down the middle that divides it in two. One side is black. One side is white. On the black side, you have a little dot of white. On the white side, you have a little dot of black. And so you have to imagine where the white and the black meet. That's the, that's the divine child. What happens when you join opposites together? The place where they meet is this creative, generative space or thing, however you want to put it. When meaning and meaninglessness, when chaos and order are joined, in mythology that's described as the union of gods. In, in Sumeria, it was, it was um, Apsu and Tiamat. So when they're joined together, what happens? They create a, the new god, right? When a man and a woman come together in, as one, that's a sexual act, it's a creative act. And this is what Carl Jung is trying to describe when he says, you let in the floodgates of chaos back to wash over your meaning, everything that you hold dear, because you must. It's dangerous, of course it's dangerous, but you must in order to revitalize all of those things that you love and hold dear. So that's the divine child, the thing that mediates between chaos and order, the things that, that brings them together and makes something new out of it. And Jordan Peterson in Maps of Meaning describes that as the Christ figure. That image is the Christ figure, mythologically speaking. It's the force that mediates between chaos and order. It is generated by their union and sustains their union by allowing chaos to become order and order to become chaos. It keeps the process flowing, as it were. And that's why in the yin and yang symbol, you have a little bit of white in the black because it shows you the black can become white. The order can become chaos and vice versa, constantly, without end. And that's important. All right, Young goes on, he says, oh, excuse me, this is the soul. He says, you are afraid to open the door. I too was afraid, since we had forgotten that God is terrible. Christ taught God is love, but you should know that love is also terrible. God damn, that's good. Because it's true. I mean, if you're, if you're a naive person, if you're a young person, and you've only seen the good side of love, this makes no sense to you. But if you've been around the block a few times, you know that opening up the doors to something as great as love, it, it, it's a double-edged sword. It, it stings, and it has a great capacity for, for destruction. Love. You know that's the truth. You know that's the truth. And that's what he said. Like, I'm afraid to open the door. I'm afraid to let the chaos rush in. I know it's necessary, but I'm afraid to do it. And he says, well, we had forgotten that God is terrible, that love can be also be terrible. So you have to let that in, the good with the bad. 
you have to be brave and fearful at the same time. It's like a union of opposites, you know, in and of itself. It's really interesting. And he's also saying that there are two sides to every whole when he says you should know that love is also terrible. And in Maps of Meaning, Jordan Peterson talks about that. He explains that the great mother, you know, that's the image of, of chaos like we were talking about earlier, that it's the beneficent life giver for sure. And you can see that in mythology, the goddess Diana or Freya or, De- or Demeter, let's say. But also the great mother is the evil queen, the destroyer, you know. Mythologically speaking, she's Kali. She's Shiva the destroyer. She's the the overprotective um, Oedipal mother, right? And then the great father, the order side of the of the of the um, spectrum, uh, that that great father is the beneficent teacher and protector. You know, mythologically, that's Zeus or Shamash or Osiris. You know, but he's also the evil king and the tyrant. You know, he's Kronos and the Titans, just the same. And so, it's important to understand. That the that the syzygy, the union, the wholeness that Jung is trying to describe, um, that it is it's split into two, you know, just like the yin and the yang symbol. Some of those are good and some of those are bad, and you can't have one without the other. And he goes on. He, uh, this soul goes on. I spoke to a loving soul, and as I drew nearer to her, I was overcome by horror. And I heaped up a wall of doubt, and it did not anticipate that I thus wanted to protect myself from my fearful soul. You dread the depths. It should horrify you, since the way of what is to come leads through it. You must endure the temptation of fear and doubt, and at the same time acknowledge that to the bone that your fear is justified and your doubt is reasonable. How otherwise could it be true, a, a true temptation and a true overcoming? Oh man, that's good. So a couple things I want to say. You can see here where, where Young is saying that he heaped up a wall of doubt and didn't anticipate that he was going to be afraid of his own soul. So that's an interesting thing to realize that when you start to, when you start to understand what your soul really is and, and, and the fact that it, it exists within you, it's like... Once you realize you've got this, you've got a great thing, but you've got this terrible beast as well. And the soul is both, you know, and he says you dread the depths, you know, the spirit of the depths that Jung has been talking to. You dread the depths and it should horrify you. And what that makes me think of is a line from the Bible that says fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, right? And Young says, you dread the depths, it should horrify you. Since the way of what is to come leads through it. So the chaos, remember, it's terrible. It has that terrible aspect. Kali, Shiva, the, the destroyer, right? You know, it has that aspect to it. It's like that, that you should be afraid of that. There's, you have every reason to be afraid of that. It's come to wash away and to, and, you know, to wash away the old, to destroy but when he says the way that is to come leads through it, what he means is that you have to go through that gauntlet, that what is has to be destroyed. Why? Because that's how something new is born, through its destruction. So you have to go through this terrible terrible side of yourself, terrible side of your soul, and pass through that gauntlet in order to come through the other side 
a different creature, a higher being, you know, and that it's necessary to go through it. And then he says something really interesting. He says, you must endure the temptation of fear and doubt, right? So you don't want to go into the chaos. It's terrible, terrible, terrifying. You, know, you don't want to go into that darkness where you don't know what's there and you don't know if you're ever going to get out alive. You don't want to go in there. And he said, it's important you have that fear and doubt. He said, because otherwise, how could it be a true temptation and a true overcoming? If you don't go into the darkness voluntarily and, 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 and face whatever terrible things might be there, if you don't do that on your own voluntarily, then what are you gaining from it if you manage to come out the other side? There's no, there's no challenge there's no fear to overcome, right? But there is, and you have to know that, to, and you have to go through it. And the person, that, the person that does that, the person that goes into the dark cave voluntarily for whatever reason and, and, and you know, is brave enough to overcome their fear and doubt, that person is somebody we call a hero, you know? We might call him a pioneer. We, we might call him a conquistador. But a hero is, an, is another good word for that. All right, the spirit continues. You still have to learn this, to succumb to no temptation, but to do everything of your own will. Then you will be free and be and beyond Christianity. I have had to recognize that I must submit to what I fear. Yes, even more, that I must even love what horrifies me. All right, so... So I don't know what that does to you, but it makes the hair stand up on my arms. Um, he says that you you have to learn not to succumb to any temptation, but to do everything of your own will. And that's something like what he said in, in uh, the, what we talked about in the first episode, where he said not to live somebody else's life, but to live your own. You, you know, to do, to do everything of your own will. So then you will be free and beyond Christianity. And that's interesting. What does he mean by beyond Christianity? So I have to say, a couple things come to mind in this first bit. Um, both of them come from Nietzsche. And Nietzsche was a huge influence on Jung, so it doesn't surprise me. But when he says, he says, to do everything of your own will, reminds me of Nietzsche's phrase, the will to power. And he believed that will was, was a very important, the most important force in the world. And then when Jung says that then you'll be free and beyond Christianity, and I can't help but think of the title of Nietzsche's book, Beyond Good and Evil. So I don't know Nietzsche well enough yet to, to make uh, any kind of solid connections, but that's, that's what it sounds like to me. This is an homage to Nietzsche. All right, and then, uh, and then, you, and then this, this soul here says, I've had to recognize that I must submit to what I fear. Yes, even more, that I must even love what horrifies me. So this is an idea of embracing God in its completeness, embracing yourself in your wholeness, not just picking and choosing what you like and don't like, picking and choosing what you think is noble and good and believing only those things, but to have a more complete picture, to have, to have a, a, you know, to wrap your mind around the wholeness that requires that you love even what horrifies you. And it reminds me of something that Carl Jung quoted many times and also Jordan Peterson. 
uh, because they both studied alchemy, um, mainly for philosophical reasons, but there's a dictum in alchemy that says, um, Strequilinus and Venator. In Latin, that means, in filth it will be found. And what that means is something like, what you need most, you will find where you least want to look. And I don't want to over-explain that, but I want to say that again. What you need most, you'll find where you least want to look. I think that is good advice for everyone, anyone, at any time. You could think about that for a hundred years, it wouldn't be long enough. All right, soul continues. In everything regarding your salvation, you are dependent on your soul. Thus, no sacrifice can be too great for you. If your virtues hinder you from salvation, discard them since they have become evil to you. The slave to virtue finds the way as little as the slave to vices. Okay, so he says here that your soul is critical to your salvation. And that's, that's interesting because what Carl Jung is doing in the Red Book is seeking his soul. That's what he's doing this whole time. He's trying to seek out and find and understand his soul. And here he's saying that that's important for salvation. And he, and he doesn't explain it, he doesn't explain why exactly, but I think, you know, it's, it's obvious in some ways. Um, he says no sacrifice can be too great, you know. No sacrifice can be too great to achieve that goal. He says if your virtues hinder you from salvation, discard them. And that makes me think of a verse from the Bible, from Matthew, that says, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And there's that's something really important about sacrifice. And I think it's connected to the idea that uh, what you need the most, you're going to find where you least want to look. Because I think that has... I think the things that we love the most sometimes are the things that are holding us back. Something like that. I don't know that I can explain that in any more detail without getting probably too personal. But I think you know what I mean. All right, continues. If you believe that you are the master of your soul, then become her servant. If you were her servant, make yourself her master, since she needs to be ruled. These should be your first steps. All right, so this is interesting. If you believe that you're the master of your soul, then you need to become her servant. If you believe you that you're her servant, you need to become her master. I don't know what that makes you think of. For me, it makes me think of a couple things. Uh, again, Matthew comes to mind. There's a verse that goes like this. He that wishes to be chief among you, let him be your servant. And then the Tao Te Ching, which is the, the Taoist holy book from China, it, it says this, The sage puts himself last and finds himself in the foremost place. It is because he does not live for self that his self is realized. And I think these are all passages saying the same thing. When Jung says if you, that in order to be the master of your soul that you should become her servant, that that's one path to uniting yourself with your soul or, or coming to know your soul, and, and again, Matthew echoes that when he says, whoever wants to be first among you, let him be your servant. 
and, and the Tao Te Ching, which says the sage puts himself last and finds himself in the foremost place. So what does that, what does that mean? I think it has something to do with sacrifice, right? There's no sacrifice that's, that's, that's not, that, that's too large. No sacrifice that's too large. And to sacrifice, to sacrifice, I want to say yourself, but it's not exactly that. It's like your pride, maybe. Yeah, maybe your pride. It's the thing about you that wants to be the master, you know? Maybe that's your pride or your, your sense of importance or your sense of being the center of the universe because we all, we're all island universes, like Huxley said. Our consciousness is separated from everyone else's, so we do feel like, in a sense, we're the only thing that exists. And maybe that is what needs to be sacrificed. I think that's a good answer. I think that's good. Maybe that, maybe that, the thing you hold most dear, the place where you least want to look, your own vanity and pride maybe, your own sense of self, your own sense of identity, that that maybe is what needs to be sacrificed. And, and I go back to the Tao Te Ching, which says, it is because he does not live for self that his self is realized. So maybe if you can sacrifice your pride and your vanity and yourself, that you will realize yourself. What does that mean? Super interesting. It's super interesting. And people don't want to. People don't want to sacrifice. They certainly don't want to sacrifice themselves. And it, you know, it reminds me of ego death when I say that to sacrifice myself. It reminds me of mystic intuition of of a psychedelic experience or a mystic experience where you lose the sense of self. And I just remember the fear and trembling, literally, that that that's involved with having an experience like that, or at least sitting down to have an experience like that. It's so anxiety-ridden, it's so fearful, and it, it's a very brave act to do it, especially when you know what you're, what you're getting into, and it's not the first time that you've died to yourself, you know? Um, but when you do, when you die to yourself in a mystic experience, when you have that ego-death experience, to say that you realize yourself, I think, is a true statement, you know, when you lose yourself, you do realize yourself in mystic experience. What you realize is that the thing you thought was yourself is only one infinitely small piece. And what yourself really is encompasses everything. Everything that exists, everything that will exist in the future or can exist. You know, it's, it's God and the cosmos and everything else. So I think that may be the way, that may be the the mystery there. That may be the way of understanding that. All right, we'll wrap up this first section with the Spirit saying, during six further nights, excuse me, no, we're, uh, we're, we're back to Young here and from the perspective of Young. During six further nights, the Spirit of the depths was silent in me. I could not and did not want to listen to the depths. But on the seventh night, the Spirit of the depths spoke to me. Look into your depths. Pray to your depths. Waken the dead. Jesus. Okay, so let me just bring you back to this dark room we're sitting in where this, the sage young is sitting at the desk, you know, with his... You know, remember, Gandalf the Red, so maybe he's got a big, white, long beard. My, my Carl Young has a big, white, long beard. Smoking a pipe, maybe. Um, maybe I borrowed that from Freud. Whatever, that's the image in my mind. 
So Carl Jung is in there. Maybe there's a crystal ball on the on the desk and the smoke machine coming through the, the cracks in the door. This is the this is the scene, and he hears a voice that he's heard before, and it's this it's the it's the voice of the spirit of the depths, and he says to Jung sitting at his desk, "Look into your depths, pray to your depths, waken the dead." Fuck, man, that could be. That could be a scene from a horror movie, you know? It probably is. <laughs> it probably is. So when he says, look into your depths, I want to ask you, what do you suppose he means by his depths? Look into your depths. It's like look into yourself. Look within. And what is that place? That's the place of your consciousness. That's where your consciousness is, right? So when he says, look into your depths, it's like in the depths, you know, the place where the gods reign, the place where the archetypes exist, those instinctual forces, you know, whitehead's eternal objects. It's like that's where you need to look, to the place that holds the most mystery. Look into yourself. Look into that deep mystery. And in doing so, you are waking the dead. What does he mean by that? So Jordan Peterson comes to mind when he talks about bringing your father back from the underworld. You know, this is a mythological theme, going into the underworld and bringing back something valuable. And a lot of those early myths, like the myth of Osiris, it's going back, uh, going into the underworld and bringing back your father who's died. Your father who represents order and culture, everything that existed, um, all the structure and order that existed before the chaos came to wash over it, you want to bring back and reinstall that order. And it seems like this is what he means by waking the dead. It's like you are, you are animating with your own consciousness the forces that lie in potential, the forces that lie within your unconscious. And it is your soul that is found in them and in you just like in symbols, in representations, in ideas, again, like we talked about a little bit ago. So it's like Jung is saying that you look into the depths is like placing your consciousness within yourself, examining that those, those inner forces within. And when you do that, what you're doing is you're, you're putting your soul in those things. You're bringing them back to life. You're reanimating them like fucking Frankenstein's lightning bolt. Simply by bringing your consciousness to the, to the powers within yourself, you're bringing them to life. And you're doing that by putting your own soul into them. So this is an idea, just like we talked about in the first episode, that had to do with images. And Carl Jung says, you know, we've got these archetypal images that exist in the collective unconscious, whatever that is, and we all have access to them, and we're all formed by them somehow. And that we can waken the dead in some sense literally by focusing our consciousness on those forces within us and somehow imparting our own, our own life, the chaos that animates, into those symbols and why would we want to do that exactly? You know, it's like bringing things back to the dead sounds like 
goblins and ghouls and and you know it sounds like a first person shooter from, from a video game from uh from my teenage years where I'm I'm going around and you know uh shotgun blasting those motherfuckers that sounds t- terrifying it sounds like some it sounds like some uh you know some tomb raider shit or something so why would you want to do that it sounds scary and risky and dangerous why would you want to bring to life these forces within you and why would you want to give your own soul over to them so that you can live within those symbols? You know, and what does that mean? And that brings us to the next section, which I'm going to call the desert. All right, so Carl Jung starts, he says, The sixth night, my soul leads me into the desert, into the desert of my own self. How eerie is this wasteland? It seems to me that the way leads so far away from mankind. All right, so it seems to me that the way leads so far away from mankind. I just have to say it reminds me of... Um, it reminds me of a couple things. It reminds me of a uh, trailer for a movie I never saw, Sandra Bullock movie, whose the name of the movie doesn't come to me right away, but um, she's an astronaut. And she's on a spacewalk or something, and she gets kicked off of the um, tether, and she just goes floating off into space, and nobody can go get her. And the further away she gets, floating off into outer space, you know, away from the Earth, where everyone else exists, and she's entirely on her own with nothing, you know, uh, that scares the fucking pants off me. The idea of being floating off there all by yourself in total isolation with nothing and no one. It's just the worst kind of fear that it generates in me. And I had an experience I talked about before on my honeymoon where I was I was uh, snorkeling in Jamaica, I was snorkeling, snorkeling in the ocean on my honeymoon and um, and uh, just swimming by the, the reef. And then one moment the reef is there and the next moment it just falls off into the abyss and it goes so far down into the dark that you can't see how far it goes and you can't see what lays what lies beneath the darkness and it was so scary to me it was the most terrified i've ever been irrationally maybe but terrified and this is what comes to my mind when he says when young says his soul led him into the desert of his self this wasteland and he says it seems to me that the way leads so far away from mankind that's the kind of fear that I'm, I think he's getting at. The fear of being floating off into space away from mankind. Further and further away from everything you know. Something like that. I also have to point out, because this desert analogy comes up, that his soul was leading him into his self. And his self is seen as like a, this desert wasteland. Um, what comes to your mind when you think of that? Going off into the desert, into the wilderness. It makes me think of Jesus going to, into the wilderness after he gets baptized, like so many seekers have done before. Um, the same thing with John the Baptist, by the way. John the Baptist, who baptized Jesus before he went off into the wilderness, where did he come from? John the Baptist came out of the wilderness. Remember, he was eating locusts and honey. That, that, that's how the story goes. Or what about Moses in the Exodus with all, with all the Jewish people? They have to go out and wander in the desert. So there's something like that. And, and you can see that with monks and nuns all throughout history where they go and they build, they build the, you know, the, the um, monastery out in the middle of nowhere so they can be alone, away from everything, 
so they can go into the desert and find themselves, something like that. And this is what Carl Jung's soul was seemingly telling him he needs to do. And Jung says, Why is myself a desert? I have lived too much outside of myself, in men and events. Why did I avoid myself? I was my thoughts after I was no longer events and other men, but I was not myself confronted with my thoughts. I should also rise up above my thoughts to own myself. My journey goes there, and that is why it leads away from men and events into solitude. What leads me into the desert, and what am I to do there? All right, so this goes on, but I want to stop here for a second. He says, why is myself a desert? And then he says, have I lived too much outside of myself in men and events? So that makes me think of a couple of things. Like, if you leave your house and you're away for a long time and nobody's there, and nobody's maintaining it, so what happens? Things break, things get dirty, the cobwebs accumulate, the plumbing, you know, starts to leak, and next thing you know, you have a dilapidated mess. Next thing you know, you have nothing, right? Maybe you have a desert, and it sounds to me like that's what he's saying. He says something like, because I haven't been dwelling here, it's become a, a desert. And he explains, if I haven't been dwelling within myself, where have I been dwelling? He says, I have lived too much outside of myself in men and events. So let me just try to paint this picture for you. One option is that Carl Jung can live, dwell within his self. The other option is that he can live outside of himself in the world and in, in, in other people. And he said something, and we talked about in the first episode that was like this, when he was talking about living your life and trying to live your own life and not living other people's lives. So I, I guess the way I want to put this is, like I've been reading since I was a teenager and all the way up till today, lots of different people, lots of philosophers, lots of religious thinkers, lots of scientists, lots of interesting you know, writers um, who say interesting things. And those ideas are interesting because they're not my ideas, right? You, that's why you read other people's work. That's why you listen to other people's conversations because you're going to get perspectives, points of view, facts, and, and connections and things that you hadn't thought of yourself or that don't exist within yourself. It's so interesting to live through the ideas and the eyes and the minds of other human beings. And it's important because you get exposed to new ideas that way and you can challenge them and try to figure out what you believe. But until you live in other people's thoughts and minds, it's really hard to figure out what you believe, you know? Um, so there's something like that going on. So if I read Kant or if I read you know Schopenhauer or if I read Jordan Peterson or something, um, there are times where you adopt those ideas that you find attractive for yourself. Sometimes before you've thought them through all the way, sometimes because they just have some kind of appeal to you, you know, you just accept them because you haven't challenged them or haven't, haven't listened to anybody else challenge them or you haven't thought about it. And that's what it feels like. It feels like you adopt somebody else's thinking and it's almost like you're living in their thoughts and not in your own and I think that's what he means when he said, I spent too much time outside of myself living in other men and events. You know? If you're, if you're laying there trying to fall asleep at night, 
and all you're thinking about is the war in Ukraine and uh, inflation and you know uh, all the, the the trouble going on in your in your family right now and and all that stuff if you're sitting there living in events that's i think what he's trying to describe here your your mind is constantly you know occupied by thinking about other people's thoughts and ideas and everything that's going on in in your world you know and within yourself that what you're doing is you're putting your consciousness in into other people's ideas and into events apart from yourself. And it's something like putting your soul, right? It's definitely like putting your time and attention and consciousness into other people and other events. And it's something like that idea of the image, the image, these archetypal images that Jung talks about, getting possessed by the soul, being animated by the soul, it's like, it's like Jung is taking his consciousness and his soul out of his body and he's putting it temporarily into other people's minds and events that, that aren't him. He's living other people's lives and living as events that are not him. This is why his self is a desert, because he's not been there. He's been out, out doing whatever else. And you should be sensitive to that, I think, because we all do that. You know, when, you, when you're laying down trying to fall asleep at night, you should be... You should be, you know, introspective. You should be thinking about your day and, and making sense of it and, and trying to improve things you did wrong and trying to be critical about yourself. You shouldn't be worried about tomorrow. You shouldn't be worried about, you know, what's going on, uh, you know, with your folks or what's, or what, you know, what's going on with this promotion or whatever it is. You should have some time where you're not living there. You should have some time where you're living within yourself. And, and, and that's necessary for maintenance and if you don't live in your in in your soul it will be a desert so this is all very symbolic right but this is what he's saying and i do think when he says lived outside of myself that, that he's 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 giving a nod to the idea that there's an animating force or a spirit that possesses objects people and ideas that thing is you would call that you would call that thing in yourself your soul and that's what Jung is seeking. And he says, why did I avoid myself? He said, I was my thoughts after I was no longer events and other men. Now, this is interesting, too, because it's harder to put perspective on. And I, it gave me trouble, too. Like, I remember thinking when Carl Jung said, I've been living outside of myself too long in other people and events, that I should be spending, I should be dwelling more within myself. Then he says, but after I was done living in other people and in events, then I just started living in my own thoughts. And I thought to myself, well, isn't that you? Aren't your thoughts you? You know, um, what's wrong with that? Then he says, but I was not myself confronted with my thoughts, right? So he existed as his thoughts. So thoughts would pop in his head and that would be uh, that what, what he would escape into. So that soul, that spirit would be living in these ideas, in these thoughts, in his head. What he's pointing out is even that isn't yourself. Your thoughts are different from yourself. He said, I was not myself confronting my thoughts. I was my thoughts. That's interesting. It's like even once you have your own ideas, once you develop your own, you know, you can think for yourself and have your own ideas, that even that is kind of an escape and super intellectual people will will dive in and dwell and live in their thoughts because they get so much pleasure from those unique 
novel ideas that came from them, you know, and, and they want to explore them and, and, and live there. And if you do that, you're still not living in, in, in your soul. You're still not dwelling within yourself. You're escaping into your thoughts and you're still avoiding yourself. And so the question is, what the fuck is the self? If it's not my thoughts, what is my, what is the self? And he says, that's where the journey goes into yourself. It leads away from men and events into solitude so that you can be by yourself in the desert. You can come face to face and confront what you really are. He says, only life is true and only life leads me into the desert. Truly not my thinking. That would like to return to thoughts, to men and events since it feels uncanny in the desert. My soul, what am I to do here? But my soul spoke to me and said, wait. All right, so. So he said life inevitably will lead you into the desert of yourself. That's going to happen. And he said, truly, it's not my thoughts that brought me to the, to the desert. It wasn't, it wasn't thinking that got me to try to dwell in my soul because if I go back to my thinking what I find is all that wants to do is have me live in my thoughts and have me live in other men and events it doesn't want me to live within myself it's not what my thinking has ever done I have to go against that instinct to to dwell within myself and he said but what am I supposed to do here once I've put you know once I've recognized that I've been living through other people I've been living through events and I've been even living in my own thoughts and I want to get back to myself and I want to figure out what that is and what that means once I once I can do that I find myself in the desert what am I supposed to do there and Carl Jung's soul spoke to him and said wait and that was not an answer that Carl Jung wanted to hear it's like, what, you, what am I doing here? I'm sitting, I'm waiting, I'm doing nothing in this desert. What, what am I doing? It's like frustration, you know? Um, he's seeking and yearning and he wants something so bad and his soul is telling him to be patient. And that's like the last thing he wants to hear, you know? He goes on, he says, the soul has its own peculiar world. Only the self enters in there or the man who has completely become his self. He who is neither in events, nor in men, nor in his thoughts. I turn myself away from things in men, but that is precisely how I become the secure prey of my thoughts. Yes, I wholly became my thoughts. So he's talking about the dangers here of trying to go within yourself, trying to stop living outside of yourself through other people and things. And when you do that, the danger is that you end up you end up trading the outside world for your for your thoughts and you live there he says i had to detach myself from my thoughts through turning my desire away from them whenever the creative power of desire is there springs the soil's own seed but do not forget to wait did you not see that when your creative force turned to the world how the dead things moved under it and through it and how your thoughts flowed in rich rivers if your creative force now turns to the place of the soul, you will see how your soul becomes green and how its field bears wonderful fruit. Whew, okay, so bump the brakes for a second. 
He said he had to detach himself from his thoughts. He had to get out of this prison that he found himself in when he tried to pull out of living through men and uh, other men and other, and other events. He found himself locked in his thoughts then. And the only way he could get out of, of, that, of that cycle was to stop desiring to live in his thoughts. He said, wherever the creative power of desire is, there springs the soul's own seed. So there's a connection between desire and the soul, which is interesting. But he's saying once he was able to um, turn his desire away from his thoughts and towards his soul, then he started to make progress. He says, but do not forget to wait because there's something about waiting there that's necessary. And that maybe that has something to do with the, his emphasis on living. You know, in the last episode, we talked about how Jung said you've got to live through, you know, that living is a journey and you have to live through that transformation and only by living can you do it. And maybe this is kind of what this, his soul is telling him when he says to wait. You know, it's like we want things fucking now, you know, but sometimes you have to wait. Uh, and then he says, did you not see that your that your creative force turned to the world, how the dead things moved under it and through it, and how your thoughts flowed in rich rivers? So what he's pointing out here is that when he was when he focused his soul on the world, um, and uh, it was like lending this creative force, this animating force, like lending his own soul to these things that were now, again, he said, how the dead things moved under it. Like he was lending his soul to these things and giving them life. And what he needs to do instead is to live himself, you know? And and by that he says, if your creative force now turns to the place of the soul, you will see how your soul becomes green, right? So that it won't be a desert anymore. You go there, you, you, you know, you go there, you live there. What you're going to be doing is putting that this creative force, your, your own consciousness, into this place, this inner place that we call the soul. And, and it will bear fruit. So I wondered if Jung is describing a process I see with like people as they age, you know, of slowly internalizing, pulling away from living externally. Um, coming to live within as you get older, you know, people spend more time in, in introspection. They spend more time, uh, talking and thinking and, and less time speaking and doing as they get older. You know, that's, that's just what I've noticed. And I wonder if there's something like that, that, he, that we can make an analogy to like desiring the soul rather than the world puts the creative force within and it transforms one's soul as we've transformed the world outside. Something like that. You know, what our creative ability and our creative power has done to the world as human beings, um, you know, that's something that might be possible within our souls. Something like that. And I know it's an analogy, but a powerful one. All right, Young says, Nobody can spare themselves the waiting, and most will be unable to bear this torment but will throw themselves with greed back at men, things, and thoughts, whose slave they will become from then on. So here we continue to see this idea that you don't forget to wait, and his soul tells him he has to wait while he's existing in the desert. And he says here, nobody can spare themselves the waiting, and most will be unable to bear the torment, 
And that's what I mean. It's like we want what we, what we want and we want it now. And if what we want is a place for our soul to dwell, and while we're sitting in the desert where seemingly there is no place for our soul to dwell, that's something that will be difficult for us. That's something that will be painful and frustrating for us. And what will people do? We'll go right back to living in other men and things and thoughts because that's what we want, a place for our soul to dwell. And we'll put that soul in the wrong place given the, given the slightest chance because that's the easiest thing to do. And people generally aren't patient and don't want to wait and don't want to suffer. And what Jung is saying is that is something you must do. It's non-negotiable. If you want to, if you want to live within yourself, if you want to dwell within your soul, you have to give your your soul time. Um, and and that's why he keeps bringing up waiting. I just think that's interesting. Already says. Everything to come was already in images. To find their soul, the ancients went into the desert. This is an image. The ancients lived their symbols. Think diligently about the images that the ancients have left behind. They show the way of what is to come. Look back at the collapse of empires, of growth and death. They are the images of what is to come. Everything has been foretold but who knows how to interpret it? Okay. So a couple things here. He said everything to come was already in images. First of all, let's just stop right there. Everything to come is the future. It's potential. It's whatever it is that's going to, that's going to be next. Um, you know, whoever it is you're going to be next, whatever, whatever the cosmos will become next, whatever the human species will become next, whatever. Everything to come was already in images. So this is an idea, again, going back to this idea of archetypes or eternal objects, that there are these images that pre-exist everything else, that exist somehow beyond the material world in the, what Jung calls the collective unconscious. Um, you might just call that the realm of the gods, mythologically. And you've got these things he calls archetypes, they're images. And what he says is that everything that, will, that has been, everything that is now, and everything that will come in the future existed in images before they ever came into being. So these are eternal things, these images, and they can be brought into being. And how do you do that? Well, you have to, you have to, have to go out into the desert and find your soul. And then he says that the desert is an image. And that's interesting. It's like the desert... It is an image. You can imagine, like what, like I was saying, descending into yourself and the solitude of yourself, and, and you can imagine it as this desolate wilderness, this place where you go to be alone. It is an image, but it's a real place also. You know, and that's where the monasteries were built, in the desert. So it's like these images have a double life. They have a mental existence and they have a physical existence, and that seems to be important. You know, they're mirrored in both worlds. And he says the ancients lived their symbols, right? So if, if, if Young says, or his soul tells him that he needs to descend into his own wilderness, his own desert of his, of his soul, and wait there, well, that's what people in the ancient times literally did. They went off and lived in the desert to, to find that solitude within themselves. Then he asks us to remember what images the ancients had left behind. Remember them because they show you what is to come. Remember. The images always existed. 
they get brought to fruition, you know, um, and we can look back at them historically and see that is what what happened then. That's going to happen again, you know. The the things that existed, those images, they're going to be reborn and exist again. That's always going to happen. It's always happened, and it will always be the case. And this is what he means when he says everything has been foretold, but no one knows how to interpret it. I mean, we we say that same thing all the time. Uh, We say that, you know, we have to study the past or else we're doomed to repeat it. We say things exactly like that. This is what Jung is suggesting. And it's not just the fate of the world he's talking about. It's the fate of you and me. He says, notice what the ancients said in images. The word is a creative act. The ancients said, in the beginning was the word. Consider this and think upon it. The words that oscillate between nonsense and supreme meaning are the oldest and truest. All right, so this brings us to our next section. But before we dive into it, let me just dissect this last quote here. So he said, again, remember what the ancients said in images. They said that the word is a creative act. And we don't have to think too hard about that. I mean, you can think about, um, you know, like the, the Bible comes to my mind. And of course, when God is creating all the animals, he's giving them names. So uh, the word, you know, the spoken word, when God says, let there be light, for instance, that is a creative act in the Bible. But let's not think about it mythologically. Let's think about it practically for a second. Think about giving somebody a compliment or an insult, for instance, those words didn't have to exist. You chose to let them slip out of your lips. You somehow, you know, I don't know how we do it, but you somehow manipulated your body and sound waves and air, and you formulated these these sounds, and you breathed them into the world. Where did they come from? Hard to say. And you had a choice as to whether you wanted to bring them into the world, whether you wanted to speak them into the physical cosmos. You brought something from the unconscious, some something, some place that isn't here at all. It isn't real at all. And you made it real by speaking those words into the world. And if it was a compliment or an insult, those words absolutely have a, an effect on the world. They're going to make me feel bad, or they're going to make me feel good. They're going to be inspiring, or they're going to be debilitating, or whatever it is. You can see how words are creative acts, whether you like it or not. And then he says something weird and interesting at the end. He says, the words that oscillate between nonsense and supreme meaning are the oldest and truest. And I think this is a nod to images, because we've been talking about images. Um. And the ones that oscillate between nonsense and supreme meaning. This is another callback to the syzygy or the Ouroboros, the wholeness that, that Jung seeks um, through his whole career. This union of opposites that we've been talking about. Nonsense and supreme meaning. And he says that the words that go back and forth between those two opposites, they're the oldest and the truest. And that should make you think of chaos and order. Tiamat and Apsu, you know, the, the beginning of, of uh, the cosmos mythologically, the birth of the universe. That's what that should make you think of. And that brings us to the next section, which is called Experiences in the Desert. All right, Jung says, 
After a hard struggle, I have come a piece of the way nearer to you. So he's speaking to his soul. I recognize that I must be alone with my soul. I come with empty hands to you, my soul. But my soul spoke. If you come to a friend, do you come to take? No sacrifice can be too great. If your virtues hinder you from salvation, discard them. You remember we said that earlier. All right, so let, let me start back. Um, let me start back where uh, where he's talking about t- taking a step closer to his soul. He says, "I know I must be alone with my soul," and we talked about that. Why? Because he, that's how you. If you want to just be, you know, you don't you don't want to live in people or events or objects. You want to just be. You want to be in solitude. You want to go be alone with your soul to detach yourself from all the things that you're attached to, so that you can know yourself, you know, naked and, and intimately. And that's necessary to come to understand what you really are, you know. And he says this thing that he he says, "I come I come with empty hands, my soul." So he's like, "I don't have anything to give you." which is kind of strange. It's almost like an offering that you're giving to a, to a God or something. It's like, you know, I've, I, I want to co- go and be alone with you, and, but I don't, I don't have anything to offer you. And, he, and his soul says, if you come to a friend, do you come to take? So he's like, should you be bringing me something? You know? Look, why, do you, why, 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 are you even, why are you even bringing that up? And I ask myself, what is Young meant to give to his soul? What is he supposed to have to give to his soul? And the only thing that comes to mind is himself. You know, he's supposed to, remember what he said earlier, no sacrifice is too great. He needs to sacrifice himself to his soul. That's what he should have brought. He should have given himself to his soul. And that's why his soul said that no sacrifice can be too great. So I think he is meant to sacrifice what he holds most dear, his identity identity as a distinct, discrete self. Okay, he goes on, he says, My soul answered, You are pleasure-seeking. Where is your patience? Your time has not yet run its course. Have you forgotten why you went into the desert? Now remember, Young is speaking to himself, even though he's talking to his soul. And this is what he tells himself. He's like, you are pleasure-seeking. Where is your patience? So it's like he knows that there's desire and, and greed and yearning that he's trying to satisfy. And he knows he's been asked to wait and be patient. So he's kind of criticizing himself here. And then he, and Young responds, my faith is weak. The heat lies on me like lead. Thirst torments me. I dare not think how unendingly long my way is. But the soul answered, You speak as if you've still learned nothing. Can you not wait? Should everything fall into your lap, ripe and finished? Do you still, know, do you still not know that the way to truth stands open only to those without intentions? All right, so... Let's let's focus on that last line. Do you still know, do you still not know, that the way to truth stands only to those without intentions? So it's like something that's keeping Young and his soul from coming together has something to do with Young's own intentions. And there's a phrase from the Tao Te Ching that I want to read to you that, that says, The world is God's own vessel. 
It cannot be made. He who makes it spoils it. He who holds it loses it. And this says something about Young's intentions and his soul's intentions, let's say, not lining up. What, what Young thinks he wants isn't really what he wants. And in order to be the vessel of his soul, um, he needs to let go of those things, right? He who holds it loses it. He has to let go of those things. So I think there's a really powerful connection between the Tao Te Ching saying that the, the world is God's own vessel and the way that Carl Jung thinks about his soul possessing, uh, whether it be his body or ideas or events or thoughts or whatever it is, or images, that there's this, there's this idea of the soul going into the vessel, and he's got to make himself empty for that, for that sort of possession to take place. He has to get rid of his own intentions. Does that make sense? All right, Jung says, you are hard, my soul, but you are right. How little we still commit ourselves to living. We should grow like a tree that likewise does not know its law. We tie ourselves up with intentions, not mindful of the fact that intention is the limitation, yes, the exclusion of life. We believe that we can illuminate the darkness with an intention, and in that way aim past the light. Aim past the light. Okay, so all right, he says we tie ourselves up with intentions, not mindful of the fact that intention is the limitation, the exclusion of life. So for me, life is that animating force. It's the, the thing that Jung is calling chaos or transformation. It, that's what the soul imparts to whatever it possesses. That's the animating force, the thing that makes it alive. So when he says that having your own intention is the exclusion of life, I think that's what he means. You have to be passive to your own intentions um, in order to allow in order to allow the intentions of your soul to manifest, something like that. And if you and if you do that, then you'll be filled with life. If you follow your own intentions, you never know if or when those are going to line up with what you really want or really should want. And if in doing so, you're going to claim too much order at the expense of chaos and you will lose that animating life-giving force, um, that, that is your soul, you know, you'll lose your soul. And it reminds me of, uh, another quote from the Tao Te Ching that goes like this. Tao is a hollow vessel and its use is inexhaustible, fathomless, like the fountainhead of all things. Tao is a hollow vessel, but it's the fountainhead of all things. Think about that. Those are opposites there. A hollow vessel is nothing. There's nothing in it. It's empty. And yet that, he says, is the fountainhead of all things. That's, the, that's where everything comes from. Everything comes from nothing. And he's, and he's calling that a hollow vessel. And I think there's a connection between this word vessel and the, what Jung says when he says images. Images are like a vessel, something that can be filled up or possessed, filled up with spirit, possessed by a spirit, animated, um, embodied, something like that. All right, 
I'll move on. The soul says, do you still not know that you are not writing a book to feed your vanity, but that you are speaking with me? How can you suffer from scorn if you address me with those words that I give you? Do you know then who I am? Okay, that's just tremendous. So he's basically, his soul is basically telling him here, um, and if you remember, we brought this up in the last episode, that he he had this fear that he was writing and thinking all these um, all these thoughts to do with his own vanity. And you know, even even in this uh, episode, he talked about living within, within his thoughts and that being a mistake. So you kind of see what he means there. Um, but, but his soul is telling him, look, you're not writing this book because of your vanity. You're, you're writing this book so that you can speak to your soul. And that's what you're doing right now. And then he says, how can you suffer from scorn if you address me with the words that I give you? So even the words coming out of Jung's mouth or the ideas formed in his mind, they're coming from his soul. And that they're not different things. And then he says, do you then know who I am? And it goes on. Uh, Jung says, your truth is hard. I want to lay down my vanity before you since it blinds me. See, that is why I also believed my hands were empty when I came to you today. I did not consider that it is just... Excuse me. <clears throat> I did not consider that it is you who fills empty hands if only they, they want to stretch out. I did not know that I am your vessel. So Young is the vessel of his soul, a vessel just like the, the images that the archetypal images that his soul can possess, just like it can live in other people and events and even in his own thoughts. They're all vessels, places where his soul can dwell. And it's interesting, he says, I want to lay down my vanity before you since it blinds me. And it reminds me of a biblical passage. If, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He wants to lay that, he wants to sacrifice that to his soul. And he, again, when he says, I did not know that I am your vessel, it reminds me of another uh, phrase from the Tao Te Ching we talked about um, a little earlier where the Tao Te Ching uses, uses the phrase God's vessel. The world is God's vessel. And of course, the Jews call the human body uh, God's temple. And in either case, the vessel is a place for the soul to dwell. From the Taoist perspective, that's the whole world, all of the material world. Uh, from the Judeo-Christian you know, uh, mind frame, it's the human body. It's this temple of God where the spirit dwells. And now Young is calling himself the vessel of his soul in exactly that way. All right, then Young says, This was my 25th night in the desert. This is how long it took my soul to awaken from a shadowy being to her own life until she could approach me as a freestanding being separate from me. And I received hard but salutary words from her. I needed that taking in hand since I could not overcome the scorn within me. Now remember, he talks about the scorn within him. It has to do with what, what he said earlier when he said that he thought the things of his soul were small, pitiably small. He had to overcome that and realize that his soul was not pitiable, but great and powerful and, and in fact indistinct from his, from his self. And Remember, his soul kept telling him he had to wait in the desert. He had to wait. It's like, what, what, do I, what am I supposed to do here? What should I be doing? Wait, his soul kept telling him. 
And here he says, that's how long it took my soul to awaken from a shadowy being in, in her, to her own life as a freestanding being separate from me. So what's happened here is young soul has now appeared to him as a being. So he has now an image of his soul. And if you have been following this conversation so far, you, you know that everything has everything that has existed um, or everything that will exist was an image first and it is an image still. And what Jung has done is brought his soul into being, you know, for lack of a better word, in his mind's eye. He's brought his soul into the flesh, let's say, in, in, into this image. And what what's the purpose of an image, according to Jung? You know, it's to... It's to dwell there. It's a place for your spirit to go. So once he has brought his soul into an image, now he has the potential to integrate that image into himself. So this is a huge step forward, and it has to do with taking this force that existed within him and it's somehow putting it into an image, an image that he can now experience, you know? All right, and then... And then the spirits within are speaking to him, and they say this, The cleverer you are, the more foolish your simple-mindedness. The totally clever are total fools in their simple-mindedness. Cleverness couples itself with intention. Simple-mindedness knows no intention. Cleverness conquers the world, but simple-mindedness the soul. So the spirit of the depths, I believe, is, is who speaks to him in these italics, and, and it's giving him a warning. It says, the, clever, the cleverer you are, the more foolish your simple-mindedness. And that reminds me of the arrogance of the devil. You know, it reminds me of the arrogance of atheists you know, who discount religion and spirituality and the possibility of revelation and illumination and powers beyond the physical. They just write all of that off because they know everything, right? They know science. Science doesn't say any of this is real, so they can write that off. They can discount that. The people who are the most clever are the most willing and eager to do that sort of thing, to write all of this stuff off, and that is foolishness. It is simple-mindedness. It is a way into error because it, it takes you only to one understanding one half of the world. And it leaves the spiritual, psychological half completely untapped, completely un understood. And he says, cleverness couples itself with intention. Remember, intention is something he has to get over. He has to get rid of his intention and embrace, let's say, the intention of his soul. And the people who are clever, the really smart, empirical, scientific types... They're the ones that know best. They're the ones that, that have intentions and, uh, and goals and um, believe that it's in the best, in, in, in the best um, interest of everyone because they're, they're smart enough to make those sorts of determinations. And those are the, that's maniacal arrogance. That's Luciferian arrogance. It's the kind of know-it-alliness that is, is the clearest path to hell. And that's what he's saying here when he says, that cleverness couples itself with intention. And he says cleverness conquers the world, and it does do that. But it's simple-mindedness that conquers the soul. And again, that makes me think of Taoism, which, which preaches action through inaction. And, it's, and it says that's how the Tao works. That's how the force that flows through being works. Um, the quote goes like this. 
The Tao never does, yet through it everything is done. And then another quote that says, Reveal thy simple self. Embrace thy original nature. And again, that's, this is linked to Jung saying simple-mindedness is something that actually has more value than, than you can imagine. Certainly more value than the clever person can imagine. And I'll also point out that cleverness and simple-mindedness are opposites, right? Just like any syzygy, like we've been talking about, they go together, and you can't have one without the other. And if one gets too powerful and the other too weak, they get out of balance, you have a problem. And Taoism says, reveal thy simple self. Embrace thy original nature. So that's important. And so, Jung says, I overcame scorn. But when I had overcome it, I was nearer to my soul, and she could speak to me, and I was soon to see the desert becoming green. So now Jung has taken another giant leap towards his soul. He's brought her into image. He's come right face to face with his own soul, and he's starting to see that place where that place of torment, the desert of the wilderness of his own spirit, where he's been dwelling. He's been avoiding the world, going into the desert of himself and trying to understand what he is and waiting impatiently and waiting and waiting. And now he's starting to see the desert becoming green. There's something to it. There's something there. He's making a difference. It's exciting. But what is happening? He doesn't know. He wants it, but he doesn't know what it is. And that brings me to my conclusion. So today I'll leave you with this. Young has battled through his fears and doubts. He understands now that he must offer up the sacrifice of his self to his own soul in order to be its vessel, in order to unite himself with her. He existed in the desert wilderness of his self, waiting and suffering painfully, trying to be worthy of himself. He struggles against his intentions, longings, desires, and remains in isolation within himself. He is scared of the desolation within and yearns to fill the desert with something, anything. It is at this point, through determination and acceptance, that he takes the next step towards his soul. For in the desert his soul appears. She is embodied by the image and is present there with him. For the very first time he doesn't just hear her voice, but gazes upon her image as an object before him. What is the next step, I wonder? How many more will it take for Young to finally embrace his own soul? What is the end game, even? Is it to live within the image of the soul? To possess her as he once did with people, events, and thoughts? If so, what animates the image of the soul now, before his possession of her? Might it be his soul even now? Might his self and his soul be one and the same? But what could this mean? Let's remember for a second what Jung said in more sober tones when he first put his thoughts down in the archetypes of the collective unconscious. In that great book, Jung told us that our psyche is fractured within itself, that there are unconscious forces at play that are ourselves and simultaneously not ourselves. He told us that this is a dangerous arrangement we find ourselves in. Why? Because those forces are ourself. 
whether we know it or not. And they, like us, want to live, to be. If we suppress them, deny them, hide from them, they will emerge with violent force against our will. They will assert themselves. The answer to this problem is to integrate these forces within ourself. We must come to know them, embrace them, and then to harness them for our own will. Until we make them tools of ourself, they will be weapons and obstacles against us. What does this say of the soul that Jung has now brought into image? He can now engage her. He can come to understand what he and she are, one, and in so doing, recognize the animating force behind the image resides within his self. This recognition can bridge the gap to unify Jung with his soul. He can integrate that great spirit that rules the unconscious into himself. He can be her and she him. What then? When Jung has become his soul, what power will he have gained? What responsibility does such power impose? Is this just another step on the journey toward, towards transcendence, towards self-consciousness? Or is it the final goal of being? Let's see what Jung's visions will show us next. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work, thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.